All right, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll be looking at the entire chapter together, and it's taken three chapters to button up Paul's answer to the problem that he presented in chapter 1, saying, I've heard that there are a lot of divisions among you, and I made the argument that the divisions that you oftentimes see in a church are a result of the divisions that are happening in our own souls. Those are just uh, results of a further division that we have when we are clamoring for people's attention and affirmation and love, and we're not finding it in Jesus and in God Himself. And uh, chapter 4 really serves as a bookend to chapters 1 through 4. So this is one whole section where Paul starts with, I've heard there's some divisions among you, here's the answer, and then he comes back to the same response in chapter 4 for how we remedy that. He says, I hear there are divisions among you. Consider your calling and know your role. Remember, we looked at that at the end of chapter 1. I said that that's how, one of the ways that Paul gives us towards repairing these divisions that are in the church. And he says, because of Him, speaking about God the Father, we are in Christ. And so that's the beginning of the answer in chapter 1, verse 30. But then he goes on in chapter 2 and he contrasts the values of the world of being merely flesh and blood, living as though this earth is all that matters and all the prestige that you can get is all that matters. So being merely a natural person compared to and contrasted with the miraculous work of the Spirit. And he says this, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one because we have the mind of Christ. So he's pulling us along to this greater reality of what God has called us to be first and then to do. He says, as we saw in chapter 3, he says, don't be like little babies who fight. And I've been hearing that a little bit more in my house recently as, as there have been some squabbling. I'm talking about me uh, as, as my kids and my wife have said, hey, you're being a little baby. <laughs> so maybe you've heard that as well as you can oftentimes, like myself, fuss and fight and take our basketball and say, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm leaving. I'm done with this. And Paul says that's not how mature followers of Jesus ought to act. Mature followers of Jesus ought to stick around a little bit and not bicker over who their team captain is. But we realize that we have a rich inheritance, and that's where we ended our time in chapter 3, that we have a rich inheritance and have everything that we could ever truly need. And he says, so let no one boast in men, because everything in Christ is yours. So why are you fighting about who picked you on their team? So Paul brings his answer to a landing and summarizes in in, in some key points. And you're going to see some some themes that have cropped up over the last three chapters. He's going to land the plane now, at least as it relates to why there are these divisions and how we ought to remedy these divisions. And So if you're taking notes, uh, the main point as I see it is that God's work is indeed mysterious effective and powerful. God's work is mysterious, effective, and powerful. And here are the three points. Again, if you're taking notes, note notes. <laughs> I like that. If you're taking notes, here you go. Uh, first one is apostles, the apostles' commission and reward. 
That's point number one. And then point number two is the Corinthian contrast and rebuke. And then thirdly, Paul's concern and reminder. Again, the apostles' commission and reward, the Corinthians' contrast and rebuke, and then Paul's commission, or I'm sorry, Paul's concern and reminder. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The apostles' commission and reward. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us, speaking of Paul and Apollos and all those who are in their train, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of us will receive his condemnation or commendation from God. Now, this first point is uh, just, if you are taking notes, going to be the longest point. Um, it's the longest point because there are some key concepts in these first six verses that you can just breeze right over that, that really form the foundation for how Paul views his ministry as an apostle of Jesus And we need to tease those out, as it were. So again, this is the longest point. And so we see that Paul gives two images right here at the beginning, that of a steward and a servant. And the word here that he first uses, the servant, that we should be regarded as servants of Christ, is used for what are called under rowers on a boat. This is not the same kind of word that you see throughout the New Testament for servant, where we get the word deacon. This is something else. This is the the folks who are on a boat and they're rowing. All right? And those people who are rowing the boat are typically being piloted by someone else who is giving them the commands of faster, slower, right, left. Right, That is the image that Paul is giving to the Corinthians of how they ought to view him. And this is the role that is largely filled by a slave. Another role that's largely fulfilled by a slave is the second image he gives of a steward. A steward of the mysteries of God. Now, this is a house manager who was also a slave. He didn't own anything in the house, but he was responsible for the cleaning of the estate, to the finances, to the staff, to the supplies, to everything. And Paul says that we are stewards, we are the house managers of what? The mysteries of God. And he's going to get into this uh, in much more detail uh, throughout this letter of 1 Corinthians, and he's going to mention it again as he gets into spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. But just to put a fine point on it, a mystery, as Paul uses it, is something that God has kept hidden for generations, but is then revealed. God himself has revealed these things. This is not something that Paul himself has conjured up. He says, hey, look at all these really cool things in the Bible. No, the Lord, through the through, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, has brought to pass and brought to light all of the things that were hidden in the past. 
So these mysteries of God belong to God, and He, in His own prerogative and in His own time, has said, I am going to reveal and explain these things preeminently in the Lord Jesus Christ. So both of these images demonstrate how we are to view the apostles. And, a, and, and part of the problem here in Corinth is this tendency, and I mentioned this back in chapter 1, is this tendency to gather around really awesome speakers. Really awesome orators who will wow you. But Paul says you ought not to wave the flag or be a fanboy. Instead, you ought to regard us as slaves of Jesus, that we are merely taking orders from Jesus. We are doing His bidding. In other words, they are not the goal of their ministry. They are not seeking to mount up for themselves a large treasury of money and being able to say, look, look, look who all's behind me. Look who, how awesome my church is compared to your church. <laughs> That's not even on their radar. They're not after respect and admiration and affirmation and commendation that comes from any finite human being, not even themselves. And so my question, as we'll see, and I think uh, throughout Paul's letter, he, he's going to say, follow my example. And so I think that we, by way of extrapolation, can say what Paul says about himself, we ought to also consider for ourselves. So let me ask you this. How about you? How about you? Are you doing things, saying things, or not saying things so that you can garner for yourself respect and admiration and commendation from other people? That you want them to think more highly of you? That you really are wanting to try to fill a great hole in your life and you're using religious jargon and religious things to be able to fill that hole? See, Paul says we ought not to get caught in the trap of living before others for their commendation, for their affirmation, for their respect. As I said a few weeks ago, if you follow Jesus, that's not the way of the Master. Jesus, who was utterly righteous, utterly holy, the good of the good, the kindest of the kind, the gentlest of the gentle, was crucified. So if you follow Jesus, you ought not to expect that much different. If you are truly following Jesus, you ought to also embrace that. And so Paul says we are merely following our Master's commands. He tells us where to go, what to do, when we'll die. Imagine living just in the time of Elijah and Elisha. Can you imagine we heard these words just a few moments ago? And you've got Elijah, this great man of God, a little strange, but this great man of God who, who calls down fire from heaven. And he outruns some horses. And he gets fed by ravens. He prays and he ends a, a long drought. He resurrects a son from the dead. This same Elijah. Can you imagine the despair that Elisha, his, his protege, felt as Elijah? In fact, in fact, we just heard it a moment ago. He said, Father, where, 
where are you going? I feel lost. I feel in utter despair when this great prophet is swept away in a fiery chariot. So what happens when great people die? And this is what we can see as it's paired with 1 Corinthians 4, right? is that God's work continues. Can you imagine living at the time of St. Augustine? Or Francis of Assisi? Or Teresa of Avila? Or Thomas Aquinas? Or John Wycliffe? Or John Wesley? Or Martin Luther? Or C.S. Lewis? Or Mother Teresa? Or Billy Graham? And there's this great sense of like, what, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen to evangelicalism now that the great evangelist is gone? Or, are we done? A great sense of despair can set in when our heroes of the faith leave the faith. Or when our great heroes of faith die. We can often feel like a great rug has been ripped out from underneath us. And we ask ourselves, what now? And maybe you followed a, a pastor at one point, and he has since fallen away from the faith. And you're like, my faith is now ruined. I'm in despair because he let me down. And the question is, how can the church keep moving? And then we come to the realization, and I oftentimes come, and I know that uh, this is somewhat of a, a morbid realization, but if anybody knows me, they know that I think about death a lot. It's actually a good thing to think about death a lot. In fact, I have a little coin in my pocket. I wasn't even planning on doing this, but it's called memento mori, to remember that you will die. And you know what happens when you will die and when I die in 50, 60, 70 years from now? This is a great liberating realization is that the world keeps spinning and God keeps working. God keeps saving people regardless. And the, and the real question for us in our generation while we are yet breathing is whether we are going to be a part of what God's doing or whether we're going to let it pass us on by. That's the question for you and me to answer is whether we're going to be faithful with what God has given us to do today. Not all the mess-ups and screw-ups that we did last week or the year before or the year before that. And not all the mess-ups that you're going to make in, the week, in next week. The Lord says, today, what will you do today if it were your last day? Will you be clamoring for people's attention and people's respect and people's admiration? Or are you going to let it go because you are a slave of Jesus and He calls you where He will and He tells you what to do? See, Paul is at pains for you and me to embrace the fact that all of these great men and women of the faith on whose shoulders we stand, that they are all slaves of Jesus Christ. They are under rowers. They are house managers. None of it belongs to them. And you and I are also called to be stewards of the things that God has given us. To use a phrase that we have often heard is, to whom much is given, much is required. See, because all of these servants, all of these stewards, verily Elijah and Elisha, they all point to another mountain, don't they? Where we heard moments ago that Christ was transfigured in front of the apostles' eyes. And the words, what were the words that were uttered from heaven? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Follow Him. 
And then we read in the book of Hebrews that all of these angels and Moses, all of these prophets, these great men of, of the faith, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, all these folks that you see, that you read about in the Bible, they are merely stewards. They merely pave the way for the beloved Son who is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Elijah himself was merely preparing the way for the true son who was also the true judge. His eyes are the eyes under which each of us must live our lives and give an account for our lives. And this is embedded in Paul's phrase, and it's almost like he just says it in passing. He only gives a couple verses to it. But this indeed undergirds his entire ministry. Look at verse 3. He says, But with me it is, a, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. See, it's true that we are called to be well thought of by outsiders. He tells this to, to Timothy, who he sends to Corinth in 1 Timothy 3. He says, you should be well thought of by outsiders. So there's a bit of judgment going on here, right? And we are also called later on in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. So he says, okay, you're, you ought to be looking a little different than the world around you, and you ought to also look at your own self and say, hmm, there's a discrepancy between what I say I believe and how I'm actually living, that are you merely paying lip service to the things of God? And then even in the next chapter, in chapter 5, Paul is going to admonish the Corinthians to judge sin in their church. But the judgment that Paul is speaking about here is the last day judgment. And this is what's undergirding all of his actions. He says that you and I and Paul and everybody else is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we have done. Under the watchful gaze, the all-seeing eye, as it were, of God, we will have to give an account for how we stewarded February 11th. While we live on earth, and as long as finite humans are judging the affairs of men, justice will be incomplete. And that's why oftentimes we feel that tension in our own hearts. That we cry out for justice, and then you see the gavel come down in the court, and it still feels a little hollow because all justice, this side of the new heavens and new earth, will be incomplete. The real truth. The real truth will always be hard to get at because people will not tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Look at, look at the second half of, of verse 5. The Lord will come who will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That is the day we need to be living our lives in light of. That God will disclose the truth in every single one of our hearts. We can get away with a lot in the church, can't we? We can shine up the old face, we can put on the old suit, we can, we can say the things that we need to say, but the Lord sees the heart. There is no fooling God. And in fact, what is hidden in the darkness will be have a spotlight put on it by God Himself. What He has seen from eternity past will be made manifest 
on that day. And the Apostle John wrote about this, about this very judgment in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, John says this, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head is a many-jeweled crown. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in white linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our culture jokes about this a lot, doesn't it? Hellfire and brimstone preaching. As though that's supposed to excuse the fact that we will have a judgment day. Oh, don't get hellfire and brimstone But it would be unfaithful to not talk about this judgment, brother and sister in Christ. The church itself can make light of this fact, can't we? We oftentimes play around and toy with the fact that we will have a judgment day and where we will stand before the Almighty God and we will have to give an account for our thoughts, our intentions. He's judging the intentions, the purposes of the heart. Oh, I didn't sin. You intended to. Your purposes were sideways. So let me implore you, let me beg you, if you have not confessed your sin and cried out for mercy, you can do it right now. Today is the day of salvation. Today you don't have to be afraid of the wrath to come. If you cry out for mercy, He will cover you under the shadow of His wings, my friend. He will take you into the cleft of the rock while the wrath and the fury is rained down on everyone else. And the Lord says, you are mine and I will protect you. If you cry out to Him for mercy this morning, that, that He will have mercy. And if you have, if you have cried out for God for mercy, then my friend, my brother, and my sister in Christ, please, by the mercies of God, let me implore you to live in light of that day. Stop playing. Stop toying with religion. Stop pretending that you can polish up while your heart has dead men's bones inside. Live in light of that day. Make no mistake that Jesus is gentle and lowly. We have books that we give out to visitors. Jesus is gentle and lowly, and His yoke is light, and His burden is light, and yet He is also the one who has eyes of flaming fire and a tongue like a sword that will divide the purposes and intentions of each one of our hearts. Make no mistake, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but He is also true and righteous and the judge of all the earth. Jesus Himself tells us of this day. This is not just Paul's making, Paul's not just making this up. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 says this, When the Son of Man, speaking about Himself, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
a throne of judgment. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to those on the left, he will say, Depart from me into the eternal fire. I never knew you. There is a reward for those who throw themselves on the mercy of God Verily, it is eternal life. Eternal life both now and for eternity. And you can have eternal life now if you throw yourself on the mercy of God. And so it is in light of that judgment that Paul comes to a very pivotal verse in his argument. And truly an underlying concept in all of his his writing. Look at verse 7. He's talked about this great judgment. And then he says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? In other words, how are you, Christian, acting any different from the world around you? You can cry, grace, 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 all day long, but you are not living in accord with what Jesus has called you to do. But then he goes on to another question. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? I mean, this is foundational to Paul's theology. Is that you and I just took a breath. That's a gift. Your heart beating is a gift. You can't boast because there is not one thing that you have that God did not first give to you. Your mind, if you have all of your faculties, your mind, your body, Your family, your ability to make a paycheck is indeed given to you by God. Many people want to highlight the hard work and the sacrifices that they've made to get what they have. And indeed, hard work is good. So don't hear me wrong. Don't say like, yeah, just it's all grace. I don't have to do anything. No, hard work is good. But you need to realize that who gives you strength in your legs? Who gives you the competency to be able to show up to work? What do you have? Name it. What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything is a gift. The family you were born into, the place where you're sitting right now is indeed a gift from God. See, Paul is telling the Corinthians to pry pry back the, the floorboards of what they've constructed on. To pry those boards back and to look that the foundation upon which they have built their lives is the righteousness, the grace of Jesus Christ. A pure gift from God. There is nothing that you and I have that we didn't first receive. And so then this attitude of gratitude, as it were, leads us to a second point. And that second point is the Corinthian contrast and rebuke. He says, how are you any different, Corinthians, at the beginning of verse 7? And he says, there's something that doesn't quite sit well if you call yourself a Christ follower after the very one who, crucifi- who was crucified. 
for his righteousness. The very one who didn't have a place to lay his head, who didn't have a house himself, there's a discrepancy between who you follow or who you say you follow and how you live your life. So let's look at this Corinthian contrast and rebuke in verses 8 through 13. He says this, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says the silent part out loud. Paul says the silent part out loud. He says how the Corinthians have really been living their lives is quite a bit different than the way the Lord Jesus would live his life. They have put their confidence and their value in who they follow and what they have. They've been parading around like peacocks, whereas the gospel serves as a differing set of values, or it should be serving as a different set of values for the Christian. Just hear the characteristic Paul uses to describe himself and the apostle. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He'll, he'll say later on in the letter, right? He said, but in verse 9 he says, They are conquered enemies paraded in front of the crowds before they're killed by beasts in the Colosseum. That, that is the imagery that Paul gives. See, when a, a great military general would defeat a people, he would parade all of the defeated people in chains and in, in rags in front of everyone else so they could mock them. And then they'd go take them to the Colosseum where they would be torn by wild beasts. And that is the image that Paul gives, is that we are the last of all, being paraded around, being embarrassed for the sake of Jesus. And then verse 10 he says, They are Christ's fools. They are weak. They have a poor reputation. Verse 11, they're hungry, they're thirsty, ragged clothing, beaten up. Verse 12, working diligently rather than collecting exorbitant sums of money like the great orators in Corinth. There is a huge discrepancy. They are reviled and persecuted. They're slandered. They're scum. They're refuse. See, Paul counted all of this as worth it. He says in another place, he says, Oh, that I would know Christ and His sufferings. Then I might be like Him one day. And whether we like it or not, the sufferings that we often endure are from wanting to be well thought of by others. as though being thought of by others is our highest good and what we exist for. And that's why too often Christians in America 
are silent and they never shoot their shot. They never say what they should be saying and they never do what they should be doing. Because quite frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, at least I've felt this and maybe you have felt this too, that we don't want people to think that we're narrow-minded. We don't want people to think that we're religious fanatics or that we're bigots. In fact, the world has never and will never parade you around as somebody to imitate. They'll never parade Christians around like peacocks. Instead, the world parades Christians around who are following Jesus as pariahs to be mocked, to be slandered, to be distanced from like stinky garbage. But Paul doesn't issue this rebuke out of anger. He's not angry with him. He's just saying, hey, let's look at this contrast real quick. Y'all are kings. Y'all are awesome. And we're a bunch of losers. Why the discrepancy? Why such a rebuke? Well, because Paul has a great concern and seeks to remind them. And this is the, the third point in our passage today. Paul's great concern and reminder. Let's look at verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. I don't know about you, but I would opt for the spirit of gentleness. <laughs> and that's what Paul's saying. He said, I am a gentle father coming alongside you. I do not enjoy telling you like it is. That's not what he's getting at. He's leaving the rod of iron to Jesus. He's leaving the sword of division to Jesus. But he's saying it's coming. And out of gentleness and out of love, I am imploring you. I am urging you. I am begging you. I'm on my knees begging you. And as uh, Proverbs 27.6 says, it says, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Or as a cynic philosopher by the name of Antisthenes said, and I love this one, that's why I'm sharing it, there are only two people who can tell you the truth about yourself. Listen up. There are only two kinds of people who will tell you the truth about yourself. The enemy who has lost his temper with you or a friend who loves you dearly. So as you consider Paul rebuking the Corinthians, you say, man, what a jerk. <laughs> who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's an apostle, <laughs> for one. He's been commissioned by God, so he's not speaking on his own behalf, and I'm sure he's not, I'm sure he's rowing the boat, and he's like, uh, do I got to write this? I don't know if I want to write this. I like these guys. I don't want them to think like I'm a jerk. He says, no, I'm coming to you in a spirit of gentleness as a father, and it would be wrong of a father to let his kid go on and do whatever. 
And he says, I am like a gentle father to you, and I love you so much that I'm going to tell you something really, really hard. And so, Christian, let me ask you this. This is where we're coming to roost, and we're going to end our time. Do you, do you really want to know how you really are? Do you want people to tell you the truth? And I think most of us would say, yeah, of course, I want the, I want the truth, I, w- I want the truth. Do you? Because when people try to tell you the truth, do you bow up? Do you defend yourself? Do you say, no, 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 that, you don't understand the whole context of what I was doing here. See, this is not how most churches function, unfortunately. And this is not how most Christians live. But I can tell you right now that I long for our church to be a place where we actually tell each other the truth without people getting triggered. And I think sometimes within our own culture, this word triggering is a cop-out. It is a convenient excuse that we use so that we don't have to hear the hard things. That's triggering for me, so please don't say that. But the most loving thing that you can do for another brother and sister in Christ is say, text, call on the phone and say, hey brother, hey sister, how have you been? I noticed that you haven't been in church for several weeks. Are you okay? If you were on the receiving end of that phone call, do you get frustrated? that how, why, are they, why are they getting in my, my business? They don't need to ask me where I am. I was sleeping. They don't even ask me what I was doing. I was doing the brunch. They don't even ask me what I'm doing because I love Jesus. And how dare they question my fidelity to Jesus? How about this? Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You say you're a Christian, but I don't see a lot of fruit in your life. How are you, to go back to verse 7, how are you any different than the world, brother or sister? You say that you follow Jesus, but I hear a whole lot of stuff coming out of your mouth that is not honoring to Jesus. You're watching things that you ought not to watch, and you know you ought not to watch them. But we're we're free in Christ, right? Yes, you are free. And what are you going to do with your time? Are you going to pursue holiness and righteousness and goodness in your life, or are you going to pursue the things of the world? That is the question that Paul has for the Corinthians. How are you using the moment that you have in light of Judgment Day that is coming? When the Lord says, what were, what were the purposes of your heart? I'm bringing it to light right now. What have you been watching? What have you been thinking about? What have you been doing with your life? Have you been gossiping and slandering in the dark? Have you been telling the truth? Or have you been just twisting it a little bit so that you might be well thought of by others? Or how about this? Hey, brother or sister, you say you're a Christian, but you parade around like you know more than everybody else. You're not really posturing yourself in an attitude of humility like Jesus. So let me ask you again, now that we've kind of put a fine point on it, do you really want to know the truth about who you are? The truth is, is no, you don't. I don't, because when we do, we get mad. We get really PO'd, ticked off, any number of words. 
The fact of the matter is, is that Paul loves his brothers and sisters so much that he's willing to say the hard things so that they might know Jesus more. That's the point. It's not to say you're wrong and you're a horrible person. It's, do you want more of Jesus? I want so much that for, that for our church. That we would get so filled with the Spirit that we would look a lot different than the world. We need the truth. You need the truth. You need people to rebuke you out of love, to admonish you to be who you are. Say, stop playing around in the mud pit. He says in verse 17, he says he's sending Timothy to remind them of his ways in Christ. You may find yourself that you believed in and you may still believe in the great judgment that each one of us will have, but you have forgotten. You and I need to be reminded. As one commentator said this, he said, more often than not, our mistakes and our sins are not due to deliberate rebellion. I would classify myself in that category. I'm not de deliberately rebelling, but to the fact that we have forgotten. So often is not that we rebel against Jesus. It is simply that we forget Him. So often it is not that we deliberately turn our backs on Jesus. It is simply that we forget that He is in the scheme of things at all. Most of us need one thing above all, a deliberate effort to live in the conscious realization of the presence of Jesus Christ, His ever-watchful gaze. And may, be, may it be so in each one of our lives, that when we live in the watchful gaze of Jesus, then comes the power to conquer sin that you've been wrestling with. Then comes the power to be able to know Christ and His resurrection. Then comes the power to actually feel the victory, to experience the victory that he has promised you by his death on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is my earnest prayer for myself and for each one of us listening. That we would welcome people speaking truth into our lives, not just saying that we will, but when they do, for us to listen for us to be changed. And so God, we pray that you would help us to be the kind of church, to be the kind of Christians that not only look like Christians, but that in their heart of hearts, they treasure truth, they treasure righteousness, they treasure holiness in their lives. Oh God, would you do that for each one of us in this place? That we would love Jesus more than our reputation. That we would love Jesus more than our comfort. And that we would indeed remember Jesus and His resurrection and His power and His grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.